Psalm chapter 15. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. So I don't know um, if you're able to pay attention to those five whole verses that we're going to study today. But I want you to know that when I started to dig into those verses and then I timed everything out on my sermon, it was almost 100 minutes long. So the good news is I, uh, I was able to reduce that significantly, Kelly. So the, the child care folks will be okay. The, uh, the home office in Nebraska has uh, uh, made a complaint, so I got to make sure I, I, I don't touch on that again. Um, so let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're told that you are a fountain of living water, Lord. And we just, we just pray that this gathering today, that all of us drink from that fountain, that none of us are left thirsty, that we, that we hear your word and, and we actually, you know, as Mark described the heart, we bring that into our full being so that we can, we can do exactly what your word says, love you with all our heart, soul, and mind. And so, Lord, you know, I just pray that these words are yours, and this message is, is gratifying not only to this audience, but to you. In Jesus' name. So we have a nice little crowd here, and I'm going to ask you a uh, mostly a rhetorical question. Normally, my wife Linda sits right there, and she's here today, but she's back there in childcare. So the question is, how many of you know Linda? And if you were to raise your hands, I would say there might be one or two who don't, right? <clears throat> and so, you know, some of you that know her, you might know that she, she likes a little bit of coffee in her cream. Um, she loves to paint and design and decorate. And I think some of her relationships, you know, uh, are founded on that love with other people who have similar loves. Um, and then, and she loves her sleep. I, I like to tease her sometimes that, if there was like a professional sleeper, she, she'd be a shoe-in. She's ready for this because she needs a minimum of nine hours to be anywhere near peak performance. But then I would also ask, like, how many of you really know her? <clears throat> like, which habits of mine does she think are adorable or maybe less than adorable? Or what she was like in high school or maybe even younger? Or, you know, probably most or more importantly, what makes her heart sing and what makes her heart ache? Because, I mean, I know we all know her, but, but that's, it's different than the way I know her because as the first verse said, and we'll get back to it in a minute, is we dwell in a tent together. So I really get to know Linda because of that opportunity to dwell. So for you all, knowing her is more informational. But for me, and I, I would point out, but she's not here, today is our 35th wedding anniversary. And so, thank you, thank you. 
I think, honestly, the applause should be for Linda because she survived with me for 35 years, but that's another story. But, but knowing her in that way, living together as husband and wife for 35 years is not informational anymore. It's experiential. And that the experience component is what David wants us to know when he asks, Lord, who gets to live with you? And so our first verse goes like this, and I'm going to sneak a peek, because it says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? And, oh, we got it. All right. In the, in the first iteration there, Lord was actually misspelled, but it's spelled correctly here, because that's going to become important. <clears throat> and so David is asking, who lives with you in your house and on your block? Right? It's, it's Lord, who gets not the informational, but the experiential relationship with you? In our culture, our Western culture, both inside and outside the church, might have some thoughts or stereotypes on who they think dwells with God. You know, culture might say it's the moral person. Um, a moral person is the one who knows all the rules and follows them. That's who gets to experience God. Or they might even say it's the religious person, the pious person who's convinced that if they say, if I say this prayer or if I do this liturgy just right, well then, then clearly I'll get to experience the living God. Or maybe our culture and some would tell us that it's the culture or the spiritual person, you know, the one who meditates and prays, the person who says, I'm one with nature. The, the mountains are my God. The desert is my God. The forest is my God. Surely, surely our culture would tell us, well, they, those people get to experience God. In Psalm 15, I'm not telling you it rules those people out, but neither does it point to them and say they're the ones that they live with God. The psalmist, David here, he actually points to something much, much more significant. And as I, as I dug into it, what I found most beautiful about this psalm is it's, it's spoken or written from an old covenant perspective, which means they haven't met their Savior yet. They haven't met Jesus. They don't know that name. And so this whole psalm points forward to a Savior that they know is coming but has not yet come. And then remember, under the old covenant, every animal sacrifice pointed to Jesus, pointed to somebody they had yet to meet. But we're not under that covenant. We're under the new covenant. And the new covenant, Jesus' sacrifice connects us to God's love so that we no longer need an ongoing sacrifice. As, as Jesus said from the cross, oh, it's Linda. He didn't, that's not what Jesus said from the cross. As, boy, I need, there's going to be, yeah, there's going to be some repentance for that one. Hi, Linda, didn't expect to see you. What Jesus said from the cross was, it is finished. Oof, it got hot in here. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to point out that the old covenant is, is, is not thrown out. You know, Jesus told us in Matthew 5, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what he means by that is our conduct is important. It's even essential, but it's not the basis for our relationship with God, nor is it the basis upon which God blesses us. Under the old covenant, a righteous walk 
was in hopes to one day fellowship with God. But under the new covenant, the covenant we have now, a righteous walk is the result of our fellowship with God. And since the fall, God had, he's always justified his people by grace alone through faith alone. See, those justified by grace through faith, they've always responded in measures of imperfect but genuine obedience. And another way to say that is in David's time, he had faith looking forward to that coming Messiah. But now because of Jesus, we have a faith that looks backwards in gratitude, not because of anything we've done, not because of our right conduct, but because of God's incredible grace and mercy through the gift of his son. And this gift, this is, this is one of the more important components here. This gift is personal. It's to each one of us. And so David, back in the psalm, he asks, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live with you? And so clearly this is personal because, you know, you don't live with a stranger. And if you do, they won't be strangers for long. So if we're to dwell in the Lord's tent, we're going to know him on a very personal level. So let's, let's look at verse 1 again, and I want to emphasize Lord. <clears throat> and some of this may be old hat for, for y'all, and, and there might be a few of you in here who haven't, who haven't thought about this or seen this before, but it's so important I want to touch on it because I want to make sure we walk out of here all understanding it. Because that Lord up there, it's in all caps, and in Scripture, you'll see Lord done three ways. You'll see Lord in all lowercase. You'll see Lord with that first L, caps. And then you'll see Lord with all the caps. And you should see where Lord in all caps, it actually means something. That's the tetragrammatron, which is a fancy way of saying that God doesn't have a name. You see, all lowercase um, means that somebody's in charge. In modern times, for us, a Lord would be a boss or authority figure. Lord with that first L capitalized is Adonai, and that's used as a description or a title of, of great respect. And so the way to look at this for, for David, David could turn to God and say, Lord. He could say Adonai, but he could also turn to King Saul and say Adonai. It's, it's a term of respect. But when he uses that Lord with all caps... He's talking, he's meaning, he's wanting us to see that this is the self-existent, the eternal God. But the interesting thing, at least in those times, is that that, that word, it doesn't have a pronunciation. And it was put together by transliterating YHWH or JHVH, which is why I had that little slide up there. You see, it's scribes that later inserted those vowels because they desired a way to say that name. And that's where we get our, our words or our names, Yahweh and Jehovah. And it's important because David is making a strong distinction that I don't want any of us to miss. <clears throat> he's talking to, he's writing to the ever-present God, the one who, who always is, always has been, and always will be. A few years ago, Linda and I, this is Linda right here. <laughs> Happy anniversary. A few years ago, Linda and I went to Israel. And um, we stayed at the King, one of the places we stayed was the King David Hotel in downtown Jerusalem. And I was wandering around one day, uh, not far from the hotel. And I went down a hallway and made a right and a left. And, and I ran into a Jewish rabbi 
in his ceremonial clothing, seated at a desk. It was a very official-looking desk, and he was copying a book of the Bible. He had a quill, not a pen, a quill, and he would perfectly copy everything he saw from one book to the other. And in my imagination, this is how it's done for thousands of years. And his writing, as I got close, was absolutely beautiful. I mean, the penmanship is, is mind-blowing to me because I think doctors write well. But as I got closer, to my surprise, he engaged me in conversation. And so we started talking, and he was, he was writing, and all of a sudden he stopped, and he held up his other hand mid-sentence, and he asked for silence. And so he stopped talking, and I stopped talking, and I watched him write in Hebrew one word. And that word was Y-H-W-H, our Yahweh. And when he was done writing that word, as is the tradition, he retired that quill never to be used again. And then he continued the conversation with me, and he explained that God's name is not to be spoken aloud, and that we must all show respect by being silent when it's written. That's who David's talking to. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, Moses is out tending sheep. It's a long story how he got there. But he's out tending sheep, and he sees a bush in the distance burning. And he notices that that bush is burning and burning and burning, but it's not being consumed by the fire. And so his curiosity gets stoked, and he goes over to see what in the world's up with that bush. And as he gets there, the Lord speaks to him and tells him to stop. Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. And Moses asks him and says, by what name should I call you? And the Lord, all caps, responds again in all caps, I am who I am. And that's because our God is bigger than a name. A name is constraining. A name is too descriptive. Because you know, when you are the past, the present, and the future, I am, I think, says it perfectly. So when David wrote this, he and his people would have prayed and sung this song. Psalms are songs, typically. And other people like David would have been appealing to the great I am as a way to inspect their own souls for worship. This psalm, then, would have been a mirror for them to see their progress and even maybe their shortcomings. I mean, imagine a few thousand years ago, 3,000 years ago, and you're having, you're having an ancient dinner scene. You know, there's a mom and a dad, and they're at the table, and they've got children. <clears throat> and through that conversation, they ask their children, they talk to their children about the sin in their lives. And they would have had that conversation because then, based on the sin in their lives, they would have had to go on and inspect the animals that they were raising. And they would have had to choose one that was perfect and then prepared that animal to sacrifice based on how sinful they'd been. But fortunately for us, that was then. And that was because they were still waiting for their Messiah. And they wanted to be close to God. And they were completely unworthy. Well, we're still unworthy. But we no longer have to do that ritual blood sacrifice because it's already been done through us in the person of Jesus. But that doesn't mean the psalm is extinct. That doesn't mean the old covenant extincts. 
That means that we use Jesus as our model and we examine it, we look through it to try to learn more about ourselves so we know how to approach God. Paul talks about self-examination in his letter to the Corinthian church. And he says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We take communion. And when we take the bread and the cup, we should allow for a moment of inspection in our hearts to make sure we're recognizing where we've fallen short. And at that same time, we should be thanking Jesus for his great sacrifice on our behalf. When Courtney read that psalm, I don't imagine anybody counted, but maybe I've got some fellow OCD brothers in the audience. Um, But in that psalm, David lists 10 different attributes for examination. And, you know, before any of you get sad or rebellious for not doing them perfectly, remember that there was only one. Only Jesus was worthy of entering the Father's house based on his merit alone. Only Jesus never needed to present a sacrifice at the temple. Only Jesus always passed inspection. And because of this, Jesus became the sacrifice so that all who believed in him can boldly come into God's presence. But if only Jesus can do this, what do we do with that? You see, some people just give up and live however they want. I think we all, we all know those people. And this posture of just doing whatever I want, this, this, this hedonistic outlook on life, typically leads to what we would call licentiousness. And it says, I can never be good enough, so therefore I'm just going to give up. And when we live like that, when we act like that, It discounts that God sent the one who was good enough, who laid down his life for us because of our sin. And then kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum, some people say, well, I can do whatever I want because I have Jesus. And that posture is also equally wrong because it takes advantage of Jesus. Both of those positions, even though they're different, take advantage of God's grace and Jesus' sacrifice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, said it like this. He called it, he coined the term cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And so remember at the beginning, I gave you three stereotypes. I gave you the moral person, the religious person, and the spiritual person. And I know I went through them fast, but but as I said, this was 100 minutes, so I had to cut some stuff down. And none of those people can earn being in God's presence. So 
James tells us what we're to do. James 1 tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. And I, I, I propose to you, I, I demonstrate to you that the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is looking at Jesus. <clears throat> and in case you think maybe that verse is a one-off, I collected just a few more for you. Um, Ephesians 4 tells us, Therefore, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. 1 Thessalonians says, We encouraged, comforted, and employed each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Ephesians 5 says, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. Philippians 1 says, As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians 2 says, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And 1 Peter says, For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. So you can see all over Scripture, all over the new covenant that we're living on, we're told who to imitate. We're told who to focus on. We're told who to gaze at and who to who to be like. Because each one of those verses points to Jesus as someone to measure ourselves against. And that's exactly the point of this psalm. Look to Jesus, the one, the only one, who lives out all 10 of the qualities listed. And I'll, I'll list them quickly, but we're going to go through them in more detail. So if you're a note taker, you got time. But he says, Jesus was blameless. He was righteous. He was truthful. He does not slander. He's kind to friends. He despises who the Lord rejects. He honors those who honor the Lord. He keeps his word no matter the price. He does not take advantage of the poor, nor take bribes against others. That's a good list. So verse 2, the one who lives blamelessly. These are the people who get to live with Jesus in his tent. The one who lives blamelessly practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart. If Jesus is our perfect mirror, he's our perfect example, we're to look at him for that example. And what this verse means for us is that the godly examine their own actions. So the godly need to be introspective. We need to examine our own actions. And the first quality there, the one who lives blamelessly, What does a blameless life look like? I mean, we know with Jesus there's perfection, but what does it look like for us? So I have some questions. Do we walk the walk and talk the talk? Do people look at us and use our alignment with Jesus to help grow his kingdom, or because of our behavior do they tear it down? Do our actions make anybody else stumble? 
And the, the, the cheeky one is, does the bumper sticker on my car tell a different story than the way I drive or the way I respond to other drivers? <clears throat> I got a nod, yes, so thank you. I'm glad. Good. I'll be watching you. In point number two in verse two, it says, the one who lives blamelessly practices righteousness. Practices righteousness. Do you know someone who's weak, yet you still engage in behavior that's temp- that tempts them? Is, is doing the right thing, is that, is that just a slogan or is that an action? Is that something we put into, into how we respond to others? You know, we're typically the closest anyone who doesn't know Jesus will ever get to meet him. Jesus was kind and patient and loving. Are we? And the third, the third piece of that verse 2 is acknowledges the truth in his heart. We all have that inner voice in our heart, right? I'm thankful to Mark. He did an amazing job of describing what the Jewish heart was. And so do we tell ourselves things like, it's not a big deal. Yeah, just go do it. Or what's the harm? I mean, can, can you be honest with yourself and know when you're approaching things we shouldn't approach? Or do we let the little lies justify our bad behavior sometimes? You know, some examples I thought of, no one will know. It's just this one time. Nobody's, nobody will see, right? Or I've, I've heard um, some people say when they see somebody stealing from a store, maybe on the news, it's okay, the store has insurance. An example that was a little closer to my heart is, is to the men, um, especially the married men. Do you sometimes take a second glance? And... I imagine that maybe that is a truism for some women too. Because if we're doing those things, if we're not correcting ourselves, if we're not repenting, we're watering the lie. And when you water a lie, we actually help it to grow. And when we water lies and they grow, they become stumbling blocks, not only for me, but maybe for somebody else. Because remember, the godly inspect their own actions. And if they see us engaging in that behavior, doesn't that tear down our Jesus? In line three, in verse three, it tells us basically the, go- the godly examine their own words. Who does not slander with his tongue? Who does not harm his friend or discredit, discredit his neighbor? Who does not slander with his tongue? Slander is a good juicy word. It means um, false and malicious statement that damages the reputation of another person. And the tongue, well, the tongue is one of the most effective weapons that we have, but it's also one of the least acknowledged. You know, the tongue, it may not look like much, but when we use it for evil purpose, even if the tongue doesn't kill the body, it often kills the heart. And delivering harsh words makes us, it might make us feel powerful in the moment, 
but it's at the expense of another who's an image bearer of our God. James put it like this. He says, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing coming out out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. That's an emphatic plea. Brothers and sisters, these things shouldn't be this way. When I was a, excuse me, a young policeman, through, through some important people in my life, through some other people that were also important but not as important, um, I started. I started having this this draw, this calling to know the Lord, and so I had to figure out because I don't know if you know this. Maybe you've seen cops, but uh, police work is rough and tumble, and man, it is filled with a lot of foul language. And so, trying to navigate those waters wasn't always easy for me. And so sometimes somebody would would curse. Um, I would say unnecessarily, but isn't all cursing unnecessary? But anyway, they would curse. And my response would, would be trying to make light of the situation and stop it without being unkind. And so I would say things like, do you kiss your wife goodnight with that mouth? My goodness. And it was supposed to be, you know, softly humorous. Sometimes it got a nervous laugh. But it was amazing to me that even the non-believer, even the atheist, saw the hypocrisy in being unkind and using foul language and doing things they knew they shouldn't do. And the second part, who does not slander? Then it says, who does not harm his friend? Who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor? (laughs) Well, Jesus defined neighbor for us in Luke 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And based on Jesus' definition, and I'm going to go with him every time, our friend and neighbor is not just someone who shares our apartment wall. It's not just the guy or the, the person who lives across the street, but it's anyone, even a stranger, who needs us. Um, probably one of my suboptimal characteristics is I... I do enjoy sarcasm, and I enjoy poking a little fun. And so two weeks ago when I was up here, I I poked fun at JJ. And in a Christianly charitable way, I'm not sorry, JJ. But I picked on him because we were at a meeting, and he momentarily forgot my name, and he just stared at me blankly. And JJ knows me very well, and it wasn't anything. Um, But there's something that happened in that meeting that we should all look to JJ and emulate. In that meeting, we were having a conversation, and there was, I don't know how many people, I didn't count, but 10 people, let's say, about a new ministry called the hospitality ministry. And we were discussing how best to inform each other when new people join the church. And there's a fine line when you're talking about other people, right? 
how to do it appropriately. And JJ said, he said it like this, and I'll paraphrase because I didn't write it down, but I did my best to duplicate your words, JJ. JJ said, I recognize that we're talking about people who are not in the room, and that can be a tricky thing sometimes. So let's make sure that if they could somehow hear us, they would be blessed and pleased with what was being discussed. You see, JJ gets it. He's examined himself, and he's calling himself to be as much like Jesus as he humanly can. And then point number three, which goes along with verse four, is the godly examine their attitude. Who despises the one who reject, who's, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord? Who keeps his word whatever the cost? So this, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but let me do my best Dwight Schrute imitation. As, as I've gotten to know you, I've, a lot of you like this show, The Office, and I get it. So question, who does the Lord reject? Answer, the wicked. So who despises the one rejected by the Lord? We do. Or we should. If the Lord rejects them, then that means we should also. In, in the book of James 4, I'm sorry, in the book of James verse, chapter 4, verse 4, he tells us that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Now that does not mean that we're not kind to people or loving to everyone. I know that this might be a little bit confusing, but please remember that verse 3 tells us to love our neighbor and what the definition of neighbor is. We always need to be kind. We always need to be charitable. We always need to be winsome when we can. But what this does mean is that we have to know firmly what God has rejected and with charity and love also reject those same things. See, we followers of Jesus derive our worldview from God. We don't, follow, we don't, we don't form our worldview from the talk show host at 3 p.m. every day or the, the social cocktail on Instagram, or whatever it is we're following. Because society changes, culture changes, but God doesn't. His, his word is good, it's true, and it's unchanging. Bless you. And the second part of verse 4 says, honors those who fear the Lord. So do you, do you respect the Lord? Do you, do you respect his truths? Or I know, especially when I was young, I tended to look at the Lord as like a genie in the bottle. And I turned to him when things were bad, hoping, praying that he would get me out of trouble. But that doesn't, that, that doesn't work. That's not, that's not what God is about. God's ways are not our ways. And so when things happen to us, are you able to see his truths? Are you able to see them as wise and even loving, even when sometimes they're painful? I mentioned Moses and burning bushes and, you know, in Deuteronomy 4, we, we also see God called a consuming fire. Do you ever wonder why God revealed himself to Moses as fire in that burning bush? I think maybe it's because fire used well heats and cooks and is of great benefit. 
But if used poorly or disrespected, it destroys. And you can't bring it back. So you see, fire is good and beautiful, but it demands a certain type of reverence. And then the last part in verse 4, who despises the one rejected by the Lord? We do. But honors those who fear the Lord. Hopefully we do. Who keeps his word whatever the cost. What's a commitment worth? Are you able to keep your commitment? Is your word your bond? As somebody once made famous. My dad used to say the only thing you can't fix with money is integrity. And what he meant by that was your word, how you carry yourself, can't be fixed if you mess it up. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 to let your yes be yes and your no be no. It doesn't say in there, let your maybe be maybe. It says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So are, are we all good for our word? Or when nobody's around, like we talked about, do we maybe fudge? Do we pay lip service when it's convenient? These are tough things. And as I, I pointed out, this is five verses. This is like if we were going to memorize scripture, this is one I would recommend. We should be able to memorize this one. And it'll help us. And so the last, the last stanza, verse five, the godly examine their concerns. That's our fourth point. <clears throat> you see, God knows intimately that our hearts are selfish and easy. It's easy for us to put ourselves first and others second, but that's not what the person who dwells with God does. <laughs> Philippians 2.3 tells us to think of others better than ourselves. So who, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent? The one who does these things will never be shaken. Lend his silver at interest is, is not a takedown necessarily of lending in general, but because the Jews considered themselves one family, much like we would consider ourselves a family, we're a community, it was unlawful in the Mosaic law to charge interest of somebody else in your family, especially if they were impoverished. And so, <clears throat> does not lend his silver at interest has special meaning there. Because an interest-bearing loan would exacerbate the plight of the poor that they were forbidden and God that they were forbidden from doing and God promised people if you lend money without interest he promised them a blessing on the gracious lender that would far surpass any interest they might have made and then another interesting thing about that mosaic law is every 7 years all creditors were to cancel all their debts I'm sure a few of us have some credit cards that we wish every seven years they would cancel our debts. But let's be honest, if the creditors did that, would we, would we have an inclination, a tendency, a desire to run that debt up a little higher knowing it was going to be canceled? That might be a heart problem. 
In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And in Luke 6.35, Jesus again says, love your enemies and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. He's telling us, do not exploit other people's misery. Give them a hand up. And the, the, the second piece of that stanza, take a bribe against the innocent. <clears throat> that's, that's doing harm to other people for greed. So let me ask you, do your finances reflect care for people that are less fortunate than you? When you look at somebody in poverty, do you look down on them? Or when you look at somebody who has wealth, do you maybe have envy? You see, Scripture talks about money over and over and over because as Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And money, especially in our Orange County, Western, suburban, everybody's got some nice car with air conditioning. Money is often a great barometer of desire. And it's a great barometer of what you actually love. So when you look at your bank account, when you look at your statement or your check register or however you do your finances, can you learn anything from that? And then the last line of the whole psalm, the one who does these things will never be shaken. I think we've discussed at length who this psalm is addressed towards, right? David was looking for a future Messiah. We're looking backward and saying, thank you. Because as Jesus was mocked and beaten and he was nailed to the cross, Satan, for a few moments, must have thought he had won, right? But as we know, Jesus flipped the script and turned that victory, what Satan thought was a victory, he turned it into Satan's defeat, And Jesus was able to point to the old covenant and he fulfilled it with the new because he's our cornerstone. He's the thing that will never be shaken. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he tells everyone, the whole world, that they're all welcome in Christ. And he says it like this. He says, so then... You are no longer foreigners and strangers. So this is to everybody. You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. You see, under the new covenant, we're all welcome, foreigners and strangers. And David and Paul both point to Jesus as the blameless one who embodies each of the ten traits we've briefly discussed in this psalm. And these traits, we should look at these as not have-to-dos. They're not. 
their get-to-dos. See, things like right living and liturgy and prayer, they're fantastic vehicles that help point us to a Savior, but they don't save. Following Jesus and loving others will help us shape, here's our four points, our actions, our words, our attitudes, and our concerns into a partnership with the King of Kings as he continues to grow his kingdom and prepares a place for us. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.